Hola, bienvenidos a Slide, el podcast de avalanches. Esta semana vamos a hablar en español, la lengua de fútbol. No, not really. We're not going to do that. My Spanish is terrible and switching up languages might compromise my messaging. So, welcome to Slide, the Avalanche podcast. I'm your host, Doug Kraus, coming to you from the Bluff Street Alley in the heart of the San Juan Mountains, recording episode number three on December 2nd, Year of Our Lord, 2016. Speaking of Spanish lords, El Clásico, one of the greatest rivalries in sport, is tomorrow. Real Madrid faces off against FC Barcelona, and if you don't know Messi from Spanky, you are missing out. Hundreds of millions of people can't be wrong. Ain't that right? What sort of quantum space-time witchcraft allows half of us to always be absolutely wrong, ignorant, or crazy? Yet we're all pretty sure we're right almost all the time weird. Speaking of wrong, pig and cow bring blessings upon my belly. Anybody that thinks different is wrong. And that's about the extent of my political, religious, and cultural intolerance for this episode. Back to avalanches. For the last two episodes, we've been talking about communication, confirmation bias, and motivated reasoning as they pertain to decision-making in avalanche country. If you haven't heard them yet, you should give a listen. Communication is a critical safety capability. If that's not enough reason to motivate you to listen, you should probably just keep walking. Sell that avalanche beacon and get yourself a nice shiny bowling ball. We're mixing things up a bit this week based on some listener feedback. If you had your heart set on hearing about situational awareness, welcome to Heartbreak. I'll get to it as soon as I can. As usual, we're starting off with the state of the pack, snow pack, that is, and then I'll respond to requests with a segment on airbag packs. Will that heavy, expensive balloon thingy really save your life? After the sack rant, we get special story time. A lot of folk have requested more anecdote and personal experience on the podcast. I am deeply saddened that you don't find my textbook vibe compelling, but if it is narrative you seek, narrative you shall have. Next week, I'm hoping we can do another brain trap segment where I'll talk about the narrative fallacy and all the ways those stories we love can tra-la-la us down the yellow brick road to pain town. Now, state of the pack. As the snowpack evolves across the northern hemisphere, it is getting increasingly difficult to stay on top of this segment. I'll do my best, but in the future, I may not report on all areas. I may never report on some areas, so if you don't hear your zone, consider yourself fortunate that some fool ain't blabbing on the internet about your little slice of paradise. It's been interesting visiting all the Avalanche sites several times per week. Avalanche Canada is very standardized. Every country in Europe does their own thing. You have to read kanji or rely on machine translation for the Japan Avalanche Network. And American centers all have common themes but are profoundly diverse. All the centers do a great job describing the immediate avalanche problems, but almost uniformly, they fail to provide a resource which adds broader temporal context. 
Sure, you'll get a reference to the rain crust or surface horror layer buried whenever and a link to a giant archive of daily forecasts, but rarely is there a summary of weekly, monthly, or seasonal weather and snowpack history. That seems kind of weird because that knowledge is a very important component of my assessment. I'm less likely to read the avalanche forecast for a place I ski every day because I'm immersed in it. I know the history. But if I go somewhere new, I want to know a lot more than just what's happened in the last few days, and that information is largely unavailable. It makes me wonder if many centers exist in a kind of geo-bubble where they see their mission as primarily serving the locals. I get that, but the universe has many centers. Anyway, the following is not a forecast. You can get local avalanche information for the United States at avalanche.org and avalanche.ca for beta north of the border. Most of North America picked up some decent snow in the last week with totals generally in the one to two foot range. Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Montana are all reporting problems with persistent weak layers. More of the main ingredient always helps, and the pack is getting deeper, but it is still early season conditions throughout most of the land. The Canadian Sea to Sky Corridor did real well, and there's more snow inbound, but unfortunately it's falling on a recently buried surface hoar layer. Avalanche Canada is reporting about a 200-centimeter base at treeline there. The Columbia Mountains are getting a little less snow, but are mostly avoiding the surface ore. They're looking at base depths in the 1-2 to two meter range and still warning of early season hazards below treeline. Sounds like the Cascades are starting to shape up nicely, with avalanche problems mostly confined to recently formed storm and wind slabs. Tahoe has dropped the persistent slab problem from their forecast, but indicates that early season conditions still predominate. Up in AK, the Turnigan Pass area received less new snow than the lower 48 this week and is still fighting their buried surface ore problem. Japan's getting more snow, but it's still way early for the main island. The SLF in Switzerland still reporting a persistent weak layer in all regions on colder slopes above 2,800 meters. On November 24th in Austria, not far from St. Anton, a party of 10 were ascending a slope and triggered a large avalanche that buried for the group. 22-year-old male from the Netherlands was killed immediately. A 40-year-old Briton died later from his injuries, and at last report, an 18-year-old Dutchman remained hospitalized in critical condition. 18 years old. On November 29th, in the Tatayama region of Japan, three of a party of six were buried, and one is confirmed dead. And so it begins again.
This week, I have more of an objective analysis for you than a micro rant. Be warned, I use the term objective loosely. I am still a human that bears the gloss and scars of my way. We're talking about airbag packs. I've had several requests, so here we go. But uh, how much do you really want to know? Avalanches are not the proverbial river of snow and ice moving down a mountain. An avalanche is a granular flow that, given enough time and space, segregates into a laminar flow, a layered flow. Airbags work via inverse segregation. In such a laminar flow, larger particles will rise to the top, that's inverse segregation, and that's it for the science. Dale Atkins used the example of Brazil nuts in a bowl of mixed nuts. I'd never heard of Brazil nuts before, actually, but apparently they're quite large. You shake the bowl and the big Brazil nuts rise to the top. A jar filled with sand and gravel, shake it, and the sand winds up at the bottom and the gravel on top. In an avalanche, airbags, snowmobiles, big trees, and other large objects more often wind up on top while smaller items get buried. Airbags work pretty well in a best-case scenario. As Bruce Tremper put it, if you look with a glass-half-full approach, a deployed airbag saved about half of those who would have otherwise died. If you look at it with a glass-half-empty approach, you would say that half of the people who deployed airbags died anyway. You don't find many vocal airbag critics, but their ardent advocates are everywhere. While not yet industry standard, Many ski patrols and guiding outfits now require airbag packs for employees and clients. The basic argument goes something like this. They work. So why wouldn't you wear one? I don't find that particularly compelling. So allow me to play devil's advocate. We'll start with the available statistical data. The most comprehensive study to date was performed by Pascal Hagley in 2014, who pointedly emphasizes that his analysis was biased towards events where an airbag was more likely to make a difference. It was biased in favor of airbag effectiveness because, statistically, quantifying the effectiveness of airbags is complex. It's much easier and more effective to promote them using rock star skiers and YouTube hypnosis. As Hagley puts it, the mechanism is valid, but the effect on mortality is still being debated. In other words, they do work, but they are not a silver bullet. This is a far cry from the media and anecdotal messaging that drives airbag sales, but certainly does little to discourage advocates who say, anything that improves my chances of survival is worth carrying. Fair enough, but not getting caught in the first place is a higher priority, right? There are a lot of factors that affect avalanche mortality. The size of the avalanche. Big avalanches are more powerful and destructive. The victim's position in the avalanche path at the time of release. Victims caught lower in the start zone or track are more likely to suffer trauma and be buried. Runout zone and track characteristics. Are there rocks or trees or cliffs in the path? And general trauma. A lot of this boils down to trauma and severity of burial, which is where the airbags come in. The airbag mechanism is designed to reduce the severity of burial. However, you need to successfully deploy the airbag for it to actually work. In Hagley's data set, 20% of those captured were unable or chose not to deploy their airbag. Some had issues with getting to the trigger. Some suffered from maintenance issues. Airbags are designed to be highly reliable, but they add complexity, which increases the potential for failure. 20% of the dataset failed to deploy their airbag. Not an insignificant number. 
I am personally familiar with at least four instances where people attempted to deploy an airbag and failed because the gear wasn't properly maintained. Airbags work best in medium-sized avalanche terrain that is free from obstructions and has a broad, low-angle runout. Big avi terrain makes big avalanches, which are more likely to kill you. Period. In an avalanche with a short run, there may not be sufficient time and space for the airbag to rise to the surface as the proverbial Brazil nut. Trees, rocks, and cliffs will tear you up and beat you down no matter what is on your back. Terrain traps secondary avalanches, or surging of the main debris flow may result in a deep burial even if the airbag initially keeps you on the surface. Some would argue that airbag deployment may inhibit your ability to escape the moving debris or self-arrest on the bed surface. Risk homeostasis, or risk compensation, refers to the potential for safety measures to increase risk tolerance. If you use an airbag to justify more aggressive choices, the safety benefits quickly disappear. Road safety research indicates that risk compensation tends to reduce the efficacy of safety measures, but not eliminate the safety gains entirely. If you sometimes ski with an airbag and sometimes not, have you ever wished for it when you didn't have it? That's an indication of risk compensating behavior. I divide the costs associated with airbags into three categories, physical, temporal, and monetary. Physical costs include weight and construction. Yes, they are heavier. Maybe less of an issue for snow machiners and mechanized skiers, but that weight will affect your agility and endurance no matter how you roll. As technology evolves, hopefully this concern will decrease to the point of virtual insignificance, but for now, it's real. Will a heavier pack affect your skiing ability? What about the opportunity costs of that weight? One can only reasonably carry so much. Are you less likely to carry other pieces of gear to compensate for the added weight of your airbag system? The backpack component of your system is as important as the airbag component. Are you making compromises on the pack as a piece of gear because you place greater value on the airbag component? Currently, there are airbag packs that are also great backpacks and ones that are a little more than a balloon attached to a duffel bag that is strapped to your back. Temporal costs refer to the time you spend managing your airbag and how you prioritize what little time you have in the event of an avalanche. Is the time you spend deploying and stowing the trigger and crotch strap relevant? Do you make the time to regularly maintain and practice with your airbag? If you trigger an avalanche, will your first action to be to attempt escape or to deploy your airbag? You may only have time for one of those options. Monetary Costs are coming down, but for many, an airbag pack is still a significant investment. They generally range from about $500 to $1,500, about as much as a new pair of skis. Maybe a small investment compared to the price of the latest Polaris mountain rocket. I'll just point out that on one end, that investment could get you a level 1 avalanche class. And on the other end, it could get you multiple days of private professional avalanche education. Your call. Again, The counter to most of these concerns is rather simple. You'll get used to the weight, which is maybe less of an issue if you're riding a snow machine. Buy one that's also a good backpack. Practice using it and take care of it. Obviously, airbags are a durable tool, so a significant investment is not unreasonable. Obviously, airbags are not a substitute for education. But they clearly require a certain level of commitment. Will you maintain that commitment once the shine wears off? 
Will you practice deploying your airbag? Will you regularly inspect and maintain your equipment? Does any of this even matter if it improves your odds of survival even a little bit? Well, I think it does. I don't wear a life jacket every time I venture onto the water. I wear one when I think it is most appropriate. And I certainly don't make decisions based on whether or not I'm wearing a life jacket. Guiding in Alaska, I wear an airbag pack. It costs me 1200 bucks. It's heavy. When you load it with all my rescue gear and other stuff, I think it comes in at around 30-35 pounds. Not crazy heavy, but significant. My pack would be heavy even if it didn't have an airbag. I don't like the weight, but I'm used to it. It's also a great backpack that handles the weight well and just fits all my gear right where I want it. We ski large avalanche paths, but they're mostly free from obstructions like trees and rocks, and they tend to have broad glacial runouts. We avoid terrain traps like the plague. The terrain use cases are pretty decent for an airbag. Plus, often I'm guiding. The ability of my group to assist in the event of an emergency is an unknown. Temporal sacrifices of using an airbag while heli skiing are notable. Anytime a helicopter is involved, time is at a premium. To prevent accidental deployment, triggers must be stowed, then redeployed every time you get in and out of the helicopter. That means I have to fiddle with my gear at least twice per run, maybe 12 times per day. That is time that I am not effectively watching my clients or assessing the slope or communicating with other guides. I am, by definition, distracted. I don't like gear that requires distraction, but I use it anyway. I can't say the decision to go that way in AK was rational or logical. It was visceral. For a long time, I resisted adding a new and complex and distracting piece of gear to my kit. And one day, the number of recently dead or buried crossed a threshold that was previously invisible to me. I called the company, paid full retail, and had them FedEx me a pack. The airbag is not a solution, but it's a legitimate tool. In Japan, for the last couple of years, I've been developing an avalanche control program for a ski area. They provided me with an airbag pack, and I removed the airbag components. Our terrain is not a very good use case for airbags. The paths are relatively short and convoluted. Terrain traps are common, and the risk of trauma due to trees and rock bands is high. If I'm caught in an avalanche, every ounce of my being will be dedicated to escape. It's unlikely that I would have the time to determine escape is not possible and then deploy the airbag. I don't care for the pack either, so I typically use my personal non-airbag pack. That's my choice. I used to work at a scary in Colorado where I procured an airbag pack for use at work. I really wanted to use it. I, I believe in the technology, but it was a struggle. The use case was valid, though the risk of trauma in our paths was high because it's the Rocky Mountains. There were many large alpine paths with broad runouts where an airbag pack would be in its element. I tried, but in the end, went back to my other pack. The extra weight was a significant concern given that I was already carrying heavy loads of explosives. I wasn't happy with the pack design. My confidence in our team's rescue skills and judgment was high. I told myself that the marginal advantage provided by the airbag was not enough to compensate for my dissatisfaction with the weight and design. As a backcountry skier, I've never used an airbag. The one that I own lives in Alaska, which is not my home. I travel frequently, and the industry has failed to provide adequate support mechanisms for those of us that track the edges and boundaries of the world. 
I'd love to have one that follows me around the globe, but I'm not sure that I would use it all the time. Probably not. I'd like to think that I'm wise enough that it would not affect my judgment and strong enough that I wouldn't mind the extra weight. Probably wrong and wrong. I bounced this rant off a number of avalanche professionals. I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that combined, we may have 50,000 hours in avalanche terrain. There is a lot more consensus than I thought there would be. To a person, we see the airbag as a tool that is sometimes carried and sometimes not. According to Doug Chabot from the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Information Center, Fike for short. The safety equipment that I choose depends on the day's risk, such as, you know, what's the avalanche danger? Where am I going? What are the conditions outside? Because all safety gear is not created equal. The beacon, shovel, and probe are standard, but everything else I get to decide as to whether or not it's going to make sense. Rules, just just a rule saying that you must have an airbag if you go in the backcountry doesn't make sense all the time. I think all of us see risk compensation as a serious concern. I've seen that panicked look in a client's eye when they realize they won't be able to fill their airbag cylinder and they question whether they should even go skiing. Airbags can and do confound risk assessment. For better or worse, every piece of gear we carry affects our risk assessment. Do you make different decisions when you are alone? Partners or gear? Would you go into avalanche terrain without a beacon? Why not? Remember last week when I mocked our propensity to regard ourselves as paragons of objectivity? I mock a second time. Time and margin are salient risk management issues. One friend said she likes to manage risk by applying significant margins to her terrain selection and snowpack assessment. Bigger margins, smaller pack. Another said that as a backcountry skier, he likes to focus on creating enough time to make good decisions, rather than applying tools which may muddle his risk assessment. That time is less readily available to a heli skier or a snow machiner traveling at 60 miles per hour. You have to make it a priority. You have to make time for good decisions. I will always favor escape as an initial course of action over airbag deployment. So maybe that puts me in the 20% that fails to use the airbag they're wearing. I don't know. One of my sage advisors related how he had deployed his airbag during small avalanches where burial was unlikely and failed to deploy it in larger avalanches that could have resulted in tragedy. I do know this. There's plenty of information out there, and there are plenty of airbag options. The uncertainty regarding airbags has been fairly well described. If you can't decide, you have a judgment challenge that will persist whether or not you buy an airbag pack. The airbag is not a panacea or a silver bullet. The quality of your judgment is what determines longevity in avalanche country. You can't buy judgment. You have to practice. Special story time. Grab your blankie and snuggle up.
My buddy 150 picked me up at the airport on Wednesday and we rolled into Silverton midday. Yeah, it's good to be home. I've been following the weather in Abbey Beta throughout the fall. Got a road's eye view of the pack coming over Mollus Pass and Colbank Pass. And it was about what I expected. Early season, low tide. But enough recent snow that I was confident I could find something to work with. Good thing, because there is little doubt that I was going skiing. That's pretty much what I do. My old friend Bo Cephas was going to be passing through town on Thursday and really wanted to get out. That's the plan, eh? Just give her. That's the plan. So I dumped out all the ski gear I brought from Peru and opened up the freight I shipped here from AK last spring and created a series of large piles in my garage and living room, proceeded to crack some PBRs and sift through my gear for the first day of the season. Skis? Check. Plenty. Bindings? Yes. Right bindings on right skis? Yes. I think so. Yes. Got that. Skins for that ski binding combo? Mmm, see, yes, got it. Boots? Please. Boots that fit the bindings I'm going to use? Ah, yes, good question. Check. Beacon, shovel, probe, radius, pack, goggles, gloves, clothes. Yes, 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 yes. I got this. What could go wrong? Bocephus gives me a shout in the morning and we set a 10 a.m. departure time. I don't like to go skiing before the sun hits town. It's too cold. 10 also gives me time to re-sift and assess my gear and come up with a better plan than give her. We're going to head for an old friend of a line in the South Fork of Cement Creek. Cruise skin up a county road, cut into the trees, gain a subridge, follow that to where we drop into the seam of a low-angle alpine bowl. I just got here from Lima, Peru. But I got it all figured out. This is my home, right? I pulled my beacon out of a stuff sack filled with a serpent's nest of cables and electronics, and it's turned on. Let's see if I can recreate my precise reaction. God dang it! Still showing 50%, so I'm peeved, but I'm game. TSA must have turned it on in Dallas. Thanks, guys. I checked the weather and Abbey forecast over coffee because I just got here, right? Seems like the thing to do. They confirm what I thought. It's going to be cold, partly cloudy. I have to be aware of persistent slab issues on high elevation northerlies. That's kind of where we're going. Northwest through southwest at about 12.5K. I mean, that's where the good skiing is. The avalanche forecast doesn't matter to me much because I know what I'm doing. It's December low tide. I know what that is. I've skied our line a hundred times. I can stand on the stoop of my home and look at my yard and the peaks and visualize snow profiles for all elevations and aspects. Seriously, I can't. What could go wrong? Arrogant? Yeah, maybe. Presumptuous? Yeah, definitely. True? Eh? Often, but not always. It's a gorgeous morning. Way more Colorado blue sky than I expected. My thermometer's broken, but it was four degrees down by the creek at sunrise, and that ain't no fancy Celtigrade temperature neither. Bocephus shows up, and we have a brief reunion after many years, then kick it up to the parking lot at Gladstone. 
I trust him. He's been around. We haven't skied that much together in retrospect. I don't have much evidence to support my trust, but I trust him. On the drive up, we get a glimpse at the Alpine and some big avalanche paths. Coverage looks maybe a little better than I expected up high. Some obvious wind loading from the north, but the trees still mostly have fat pillows of snow on the branches. Below treeline, I can see the topography and texture of the ground cover underneath the snowpack. Grass and logs poke through here and there. Terrain features that are buried mid-season are still prominent. My observations are confirming what I thought I would see. We gear up the trailhead and I mentioned that I should probably check my junk since I haven't skied on this rig since April. I click into tour mode, give her the hairy eyeball. Nothing looks out of whack, so we roll. Same, same, obs-wise on the way up the road. It's warm now as we cruise along in the sun. I can still visualize the ground cover underneath the snowpack and the avalanche paths we pass. We can see the drifting up high adjacent to ridgeline. No evidence of recent avalanche activity. As soon as I step off the road into the trees, we get a collapse. Oof. Sweet, I reply. I'd actually be more confused if that hadn't happened. Finally, we have some direct feedback from the snowpack. Bocephus comments on how much colder it got as we entered the trees. Some clouds are starting to push in. We get another goodly collapse and proceed up our zero-exposure route through a glade of old-growth evergreens. Bocephus has never been here before. Last night, I gave him the broad strokes of our plan. I reiterate, we're going to minimize our exposure on the way up. The way down is a low-consequence route that probably has tracks in it. I hate tracks, but we're setting the bar low. Maybe we'll be able to sneak off to the sides and grab some fresh. We cross a big window in the trees, and I wonder aloud if it's going to collapse. It doesn't. We gain the subridge and start switchbacking towards a bench. There's some prominent pillows lee of the ridge, which I point out and wend my way upwards trying to balance exposure with the most efficient route. Bocephus is pausing and giving me space everywhere he should. Unbeknownst to me, he pulls out his beacon and checks me after I indicate I'm going to cut under a pillow and cut back on the far side. As we move above treeline and the whole basin comes into view, there's no visible evidence of recent avalanching, maybe some lightly buried piles of slough from the last storm cycle, but nothing more than that. The most alarming thing we see is an old skin track that undercuts a prominently wind-loaded slope near treeline. That's where I might go if I wanted to trigger an avalanche. We chat a bit about the people that ski here. I can imagine that group 100% confident with their route until they get to that spot where they had to undercut the load. Their route was okay above that and fine below. I can hear their conversation as they build a case for undercutting the slope. We'll spread out. One at a time. If it goes, it's probably fine. Nice smooth run out. I don't know if they had that conversation, but I can hear it. We top out, start ripping our skins. Snow looks good. We haven't touched any sun crust or wind slab yet, though. We've discussed both. I click in and immediately pop out of my heel as I flex forward. Well, that ain't right. Bocephus and I both have tools, and eventually I remember backing off that heel piece when I was trying to remove the bindings last week. Clearly, my parking lot hairy eyeball failed to achieve its intended objective, but I fix it. We talk about the pack. I describe the most conservative route, which is full of tracks. 
and a slightly more aggressive option off to the right, which has no tracks. I try to put my forecast in terms of evidence, uncertainty, margin, and consequences, because that's my new thing. I'm done with speaking in terms of confidence. I describe my plan to ski the more aggressive side and back it up with a compelling narrative of why I think that's fine. I'm pretty good at constructing compelling narratives for why I should do what I want. What could go wrong? I am confident. I don't use the word, but I am. This is my home. I suggest to Bo that he can hit the tracks or maybe just sneak right at them a bit, splitting the difference between conservative and more aggressive. He says maybe he'll just watch me and make the call. 10-4. That's when I mentioned what a strong advocate of skiing with radios I am. I charged mine up this morning and they're at home. Because I figured this was about as simple as tour as it gets. Cephas is a big radio advocate too. He ain't got none either though. So we have a little, huh, moment. And theoretically resolve to always carry them in the future. Even if we don't think we need them. We're ready. Then all at once the light goes flatter and hammered poop. Whoops. We're being serious instead of spacing out in the clouds. Live and learn. Of course, at this point, I suggest Bocephus can go first if he likes. I am reliably gallant on my home turf, yet not ashamed to sandbag. He decides to poke just right at the existing tracks, and I point out where he should post up and we'll rendezvous there. Given how low we set the bar, Bocephus has an awesome run. He cranks a bunch of turns in about 30 to 50 cms of fasted pow, no wind skin, no sun crust. Best case scenario, really. He posts up, gives me a pole wave, and I rock out farther right onto the broader face where I can carry some speed that will allow me to jive and get out in a hurry if something goes wrong. Dropping. Nothing went wrong. It was great. Well, it was good. You surprised? I kind of set you up, but come on, I told you this was my home. I've screwed up big plenty of times around here. Screwed up big, got lucky. But Thursday was not one of those times. My point is that nothing went wrong is not the end of the day. I haven't skied with Bocephus in at least six or seven years, and yeah, I trust him, but He's not a trusted partner that I have thousands of meters avert with. My beacon was on when I unpacked it. I charged my radios, then left them at home. I knew I needed to check my bindings, but satisfied with a hairy eyeball in the parking lot. We did no trailhead beacon check. I wanted to dig a pit and brought all my junk to do that, but we didn't because really, I didn't want to dig a pit. The light went flat. I let the new guy go first. That's just my side. Maybe the venerable Bocephus had issues too that I don't even know about. This was my first day of the season. It was awesome, mediocre, early season skiing. It was very far from an exemplary risk management performance. But I learned from it. Nothing went wrong, but I learned from it. I think I did. I tried to. I hope your days go as well. Success is not an indication of expertise. If you want to be successful in avalanche country, know that success, devoid of context and feedback, is nothing more than a 
high five and the wind that drifts away and leaves you no better at the top of your next line. Well, that's it, everybody. If you enjoyed Slide, the Avalanche podcast, please subscribe via your iPhone or Android. If you can't figure that out, ask a millennial for help. I relish your feedback, so please don't hesitate to provide it. You can message me via our Facebook page or send smoke signals from the nearest Rocky Knoll. Let me know if you like special story time or if you'd rather go back to brain traps or or what's doing it for you. I got to be in Summit County almost all next week for our professional education workshop, so episode four may be delayed a bit, but I'm still going to shoot for Friday. Situational awareness and brain traps continue to be on the agenda, and I also want to get a bit into recent changes in avalanche education in the United States. Emotional support this week was provided by the Avalanche Review, the American Avalanche Institute, Hakaba Mountain Life, and all the people that have reached out to me with feedback. Thank you. Pray for snow. Excluding those pimpin' mariachis in the Barcelona fight song, our music is by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Thanks, man.